Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our most recent episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Shasodia. Hi there, Raj. Hi, Timothy. Good to see you again. Good to see you. And before we just get into our guest, I just want to have a quick shout out to you and your new book, which came out last week, Awaken. We'll talk about that in another episode, but uh, congratulations on that. Thank you. Well, today it is. Um, it's an honor and a pleasure to have uh, our guest today. And um, I'm going to steal a bit from his new book. In the intro to his new book, there's a description that says, you know, there was this guy, Peter Drucker, who was maybe the first big business guru. And then Peter passed. And then we had Warren Bennis out at uh, USC who wrote wonderful books on, on leadership. And we have the honor today of having somebody who's nominated as the successor to that trio bill george bill welcome to our show today timothy thank you thank you i'm honored to be on your this amazing show you have so it's an honor and a privilege to be here and i want to be clear to your listeners that wasn't i who said that that was my close colleague who wrote the forward david gergens so uh yes indeed yes indeed now bill is both a practitioner and a deep thinker on the subject of leadership. A practitioner in the sense that Bill was the former chairman and chief executive of Medtronic. He joined Medtronic, the medical device business, in 1989 as the president and chief operating officer, and then was CEO for 10 years from 1991 to 2001 and board chair from 96 to 2002. He is currently, after a tenure now of 20 years at Harvard Business School. He is an executive fellow at the business school where he's taught leadership since 2004. He is the man who put the word authentic leadership on the map by writing a book about it and has then written a, an amazing series of books, which we're going to dive into a little bit today that begin with the idea of your true north, discovering your true north and the tools that go with that. As if he doesn't have any time for anything else, he's also served on the boards of a few companies. You may have known Goldman Sachs, ExxonMobil, Novartis, Target, and Mayo Clinic. Bill, again, just a wonderful privilege to have you today. Welcome. Thank you, Timothy. Now, I think the highest praise I can give to your new book is that I have two emergent leaders in my life, a 23-year-old and a 26-year-old, and it was my gift to them. Uh, as I read through your book, I gave them the audio version because, hey, after all, they're Gen Z guys who has time to read these days, but they will listen to it. And, uh, and I think it's just an outstanding book for young people and not even young people to be looking at and thinking about what it really means to be a leader today. So I guess my first question, in writing True North, uh, a guide for emergent leaders, um, what shifted in your thinking? What's shifted from the first book, which was written in what, 2007, 2008, to now, um, 2023? Why now? Why this book? Well, you know, I actually wrote an earlier book, 2003, called Authentic Leadership. And uh, I really think we're going through a massive change in leadership from the baby boomers leadership and what I would call uh, the era of Jack Welch back in the 90s when I was CEO that kind of carried over for the next 10 years or so of command and control and where everything goes to the power, all powerful person on top. I almost said white male because most of them were white, white American males. Uh, and there's this massive change going on uh, in leadership. And today's your sons as Gen Zers or if they're barely kind of Gen Zers, millennials are not going to accept uh, uh, just power-driven leaders that are out for themselves that uh, want to make a lot of money for themselves. And uh, 
are only can have big egos. It, it's a very different world. And I think we need to go rapidly through this. And my book is intended, the Emerging Leader Edition, turn it a clarion call for younger leaders to step up and take charge. Uh, got a lot of baby boomers features. They're really forerunners of the new generation of leaders. And Raj knows a lot of those people. Uh, they're really the forerunners uh, of the new generation. But I think we need people who are deeply committed to empowering people uh, and to a mission and a purpose and clarity of values. We see the media giving a lot of attention to deviance from that, to uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk. And there's a big article in the New York Times this week uh, about uh, all the people going to jail, the Sang Bankman Freeds and Elizabeth Holmes and the woman named Charlie Javits. These are frauds. You know, no one ever thought of these people as real leaders, but they sure got a lot of money and attention. And I think our society needs to have really strong leaders who are committed to the organization, the enterprise. And I'm a believer in longevity. And it, I think it's a tragedy when a company like General Electric disappears or somebody like Boeing gets in trouble. Uh, I really believe in companies that uh, can sustain themselves, but they can't do that unless they have the right leaders. Uh, not just at the top, throughout the organization. And an organization that has very strong leaders can actually survive a mediocre lever on top. But if you put the wrong person in charge, you can destroy the enterprise. Uh, kind of like no. Carly Fiorina did to Hewlett Packard. I was talking to a, one of the early executives at Hewlett Packard, Jesse, who's now a private equity expert. And he was telling me about how great the early days were, were with Dave and Bill. And then Carly comes in and bye-bye uh, Hewlett Packard, as it was known. So... Uh, uh, I'm really a believer it's all about the leaders and we need to have the next generation. But the other thing that's really changed, Timothy, is we need leaders at all levels. It's not that person on top. And we need people who are, don't even have any direct reports to step up and lead in their own way. Maybe they lead on behalf of an innovation, on behalf of a customer. Maybe they're kind of nominally in charge of a project team, uh, but they get things done. But they are real leaders and they're committed to the mission and purpose of their enterprise. Well, well, that's a lot. And and I think the book is wonderfully organized. I think there are four main sections of it. One is around discovering yourself. One is around developing yourself. Then there's leading people moving from the I to the we. And then the last section is a really interesting one on today's challenges and really the discussion of moral leadership. So, you know, playing on the riff you just made about, you know, the people that are in the headlines, um, maybe talk a little bit more about that, the importance of that idea of moral leadership and why that's one of the four pillars of the book. Well, you know, we, I believe, we came up with the idea of the term true north in 2007, but really that is your moral compass. And as Jim Burke, the famous CEO of J&J, who recalled Tylenol, said, Came to Harvard Business School six months later, and he said, you know, without a moral compass, you'll swim in chaos. And I see a lot of organizations swimming in chaos right now. A couple of our major uh, social media organizations, Twitter and Facebook, are swimming in chaos because there's no moral compass there. And that needs to start early in your life. It's not like, oh, I did a lot of nefarious things in my 20s and 30s, and I kind of <laughs> discovered my moral compass in my 40s. No, I think it's important. You mentioned your son's. They need to have a moral compass now. It may, they may have a lot of experience yet to gain and to learn, a lot of wisdom, but they need that clarity of their values. And yeah. so that's what I mean. And, uh, you know, we can get into this, Timothy, but I think, you know, Raj wrote a brilliant book along with John Mackey about conscious capitalism, but that's really the stakeholder model of thinking. you got to think about all the people you serve and think of yourself as a servant leader not just of the almighty shareholder of the last five minutes, that activist investor, but think of yourself as serving your customers, your employees, even the regulator, regulators that uh, that mm. uh, you have to work with. You may not think of them as part of your stakeholders, but they got a stake in you and how well you do. And uh, we've seen that, uh, you know, with various drugs that uh, get in trouble and have to be recalled. Well, Bill, uh, you mentioned conscious capitalism. So that book came out 10 years ago, and we were privileged to have you write the foreword of that book. And I know that your first line was, this is the book that I wanted to write. Yeah. Uh, and, and essentially, you said that is real capitalism, right? What we talked about, this is what it's meant to be, right? It's about us meeting each other's needs in a, in a caring and uh, compassionate way. Uh, so looking at this uh, evolution over the last 10 years, you know, our movement has grown, conscious capitalism is 
in about 30 US cities, about 15 other countries. The ideas that, that we talk about, which are not unique to us, of course, there's B Corps and B Team and uh, Just Capital and Inclusive Capitalism and, and various other parallel movements. You know, we made a lot of progress with the Business Roundtable in 2019, reflecting some of that language, et cetera. Uh, and yet, I feel we're in a moment right now where there's a bit of a backlash, right? And we're we're used seeing the phrase "woke capitalism" being bandied about, and sort of a convenient cudgel to uh, hit any idea that you don't want, you don't want to embrace, and and keep the status quo going a little bit longer. So, what what are your thoughts on this whole? I don't want to call it a critique because I don't think it's a it's a legitimate critique, but it's really kind of a, just a backlash around woke capitalism. Well, unfortunately, it's gotten into the political areas, and I think that's the sad thing. Your book was really the forerunner of what the Business Roundtable did in 2019 with the stakeholder model. But we're realizing it's got a lot of complexities too. You know, it's not like you've got to figure out how to serve all these stakeholders. It's not just uh, satisfying your shareholders. Uh, and so you've got to do that well, including your employees. Employees have agency today, Raj, and they want somebody to represent them. And that means CEOs speaking out. And we have new CEOs coming to our program at Harvard. We've had about 300, 350 over the last 18, 19 years. I can tell you their number one fear is when do I speak out? And uh, the, uh, I, just this morning, uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida is attacking Disney. His largest employer is largest investor in the state. Uh, and threatening to put up prisons and other things right on the border of Disney and uh, a lot of crazy things. And, you know, they employ a lot of people. And frankly, it brings more tourist dollars to Florida than any other single thing, uh, maybe in the country. And uh, so you see this, uh, but the term woke has been totally misused. That's actually an African-American term. Martin Luther King used it uh, to say, stay awake, you know, mm -hmm. be aware you know, when you're driving, you may be stopped. And it was really a warning to uh, to Black Americans. And uh, frankly, it's now been expropriated to say the, the liberal whites got a hold of it and used it for everything. And now it's been uh, become this backlash. And the other one's uh, surprising me, the backlash against uh, ESG, mm -hmm. uh, which stands mm -hmm. for environmental, social and governance. Well, they're saying, you know, if you're if you're really concerned about climate change, you're woke. No, I, I think most most younger generations are more concerned about climate change than the older because they realize they're going to have to live with it. And we see this winter, we see the effects of climate change in Florida and uh, California, where they, they didn't had a drought and then they had 870 inches of snow up at Mammoth and huge floods. And uh, so we're we're in a different era. And I don't know how you can attack companies that are concerned about that. Uh, or how you can not be concerned about companies that have good governance uh, or concerned mm -hmm. about all aspects of their employees. And frankly, your employees expect that. So I think it, I'm sad to see this get in the political sector. In my book, I very intentionally not got into politics, trying to stay away from that. Uh, I do think the ideas in the book would apply well to uh, government employees, military uh, medical employees, as well as business people and nonprofits as well. I don't know if they'd apply if people were running for office. I'm not a politician. I could never get elected because I'm too blunt, but uh, I don't know if they'd apply there. But I hate to see the politicians delving into this area. I am, a like you, Raj, uh, I'm a fervent capitalist. It's capitalism that's created all the wealth in our society, but capitalism without boundaries can get into trouble too. And we've seen that in this era of what I call free money with interest rates close to zero, it's caused a lot of people to chase bad opportunities and to do a lot of unethical things to get rich. And I'm very much opposed to that. So that does not fit into what I call conscious capitalism uh, at all. Yeah. So, I, you know, you do have a, a section of your book called Stakeholder Capitalism. And, and right. in that you highlight what you call short term traderism, so to speak versus long-term investorism, shall we call it, you know, looking at how you create sustainable uh, long-term value in an organization and, and, and in society. And, you know, this was, you know, not only is the book 10 years old, but the movement's 15 years old. You know, we kicked this thing off in February of 2008 with a retreat at, at John Mackey's ranch. And, you know, it's 15 years later, and at least now people are talking about purpose and stakeholders, and they weren't then. 
But boy, the arguments about trying to get people to focus on long-term value creation, when we have so many studies that now start to show that, you know, purpose-driven, great places to work, good jobs, all of these things create opportunities for higher long-term performance. And yet, and yet, even in your book, the example you give of Salesforce, now under its own pressure from short-term activism, the short-term casino capitalists. Bill, what are we missing? We've been we've been battling at this door for a while. And, you know, we're obviously, you know, not making a lot of progress at some level. So I, I'm curious, what, what have we missed that that isn't turning the mindsets of people to sort of this longer term perspective? If you want a business to thrive, you've got to give it some runway to do it. Yes, you do. And coming from Medtronic, it was all about innovation. That was Medtronic's superpower. And that's what we focused on. And that's what allowed us to create a tremendous amount of long-term shareholder value. But it's never short-term. I know when Ken Frazier went to Merck, uh, he uh, found a, job, a drug to, uh, failing in the lab and brought it out called Keytruda. It's now become the best-selling drug, keeping President Jimmy Carter alive, even though he's gone into hospice now. Uh, I, I think that uh, maybe you're not missing anything except the fact that I hate to admit that greed is real. And if people think they make money on the short term, now a lot of these people will make money one day, like Bill Ackman, and next thing they destroy it all the next day. And we've seen that with a lot of these short term players and uh, mm. these activists that tell you, oh, we're into long term and, you know, they get you to want to break up the company. I, I talk in the book about Indra Nui warding off. Uh, Nelson Peltz, who wanted to break up PepsiCo. And PepsiCo is flourishing under her successor, flourished under her, it's flourishing under hers. It's a long-term player. It's a company that's been with us for a very long time. Hopefully, it's going to be with us. And they focus on developing great leaders. That's their secret mm. sauce. In fact, uh, yeah. the new CEO of Starbucks, Lakshman Narasimhan, comes from PepsiCo. The new CEO of Albertsons, Vivek Sankaran, comes from. There's a whole series of people. And they're great people. They just chose Ramon Lagarda as a great CEO to replace Indra, who had done a fabulous job. But she had the tenacity to hang in there and say, that's not best for the long-term shareholders. And I think boards need to stiffen their backs and take these people on. It's a game. And you got to yeah. take on the game and say, what's in the best interest of our long-term shareholders? I'm, I'm very pro-shareholder, but what's in the best interest of our customers? What's in the best interest of our employees? What's in the best interest of society? We're making a contribution to society. We can't solve all spinal problems. Indra is trying to solve the problems of obesity with having more nutritious food. Uh, good for her. And so we need examples like that. That's why I held her up, because here's someone that would not back down from that goal and all this shareholder pressure. And she had the tenacity. And so when I work with CEOs and, and boards, I say, you've got to, you've got to realize what business is this company in, and you've got to be in it for the long term. That's so today Hewlett Packard under Enrique Loris is trying to come back to the original Hewlett Packard, but they lost a, a couple of decades in the meantime. And yeah. so, uh, and uh, I'm certainly not proud of General Electric going out of business because this is a company, the greatest company supposedly of the 19th century or 20th century, but it's gone. And yeah, there are a couple of divisions left, but that bear yeah. the GE. That's not GE as we know it. And uh, they played that game. And I tell you, if you play the game that the short-term shareholder wants, they can they can leave you tomorrow, but you'll be left holding the bag. So yeah. Medtronic has strongly resisted that. And I just think I'm trying to stiffen the back of leaders at all levels to say, no, we got to do the right thing for the long term. And if we do the right thing for our customers, by the way, we're going to create shareholder value. You never create shareholder value just by cutting costs. You can do it short term. We mm. see that going on at Meta right now. They're, they're getting their stock to bounce back by uh, laying off a lot of people. Same at Twitter, all that's privately held. Uh, but I can tell you, uh, you only create shareholder value by creating value for your customers. And I tell executives in my courses at Harvard, look, you only, only are going to survive for the long term by creating greater value for your customers than your competitors can. And if you fail to do that, let's take uh, Whole Foods under John Mackey and Walter Rapp. Now they have new leadership. If they fail not to create value, they sure they charge high prices, but they create great value for their customers. If they fail to do that, they'll be gone too. So I think that's our job. And that's how you create sustainable shareholder value. And that's what gets your employees excited. I can't go to the employees at Medtronic and say, you know, 
guys, we got to come to the stock market to make three nineteen a share this year. Uh, really need your help with this. They'll look at me like, what are you talking <laughs> about? I don't know. Anything about that. If I say yeah. to them, that heart valve has to be perfect and you're going to make 500 valves this year. If one of them is failed, someone's going to die and you, boy, that gets their attention. That's what they think about. That's where they live or someone in the lab is kind of, a breakthrough idea that they're going to bring for Parkinson's disease. And we finally bring it to market mm. and it transforms people's lives with Parkinson's. That's fantastic. Yeah. And that's what people, that's what employees get accepted. And see, we have, we have kind of dissed or we disrespected our first line employees, whether they're people work in a restaurant, they're uh, back in the, in the kitchen, whether they're people on the front line of a grocery store, on the front line of an airline, or there are people in the labs at Medtronic, they're doing the breakthrough innovation, or the people in production line making quality. Those are the people. And we've undercompensated them. We've underappreciated these people. We've let all the money go up to the top so people can make a lot of money on top, mostly through the stock price going up. And people in the front line are not making an adequate enough money to put bread on the table. Some of them have a lot of have to have two jobs. This this is not right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you, you wrote a, a, a wonderful article in December, I think it was, in, in her business review about the frontline worker and the importance of that. And um, I think in the article, if I recall, you reflected on the 30-30-30-10 rule that you had as a CEO. Um, maybe talk a little bit about how you got to that point where you said, yeah, that's the right way I should be doing it. And I need to be spending more time talking to customers, 30%. And talking to frontline workers, 30%, 60% of a CEO's time talking to the people who actually do the work. What were you thinking? <laughs> well, I came from Honeywell, and I thought I was going to be CEO, global CEO of Honeywell, great company, Minneapolis Honeywell, referring to. And I was on that track, but I wasn't happy. And I had been called back from President of Europe to take a series of turnarounds. And so it was one after number. And frankly, uh, I spent all my time chasing numbers short-term numbers for all the divisions. I had nine divisions, three groups, and uh, I wouldn't really have opportunities to be out there as much as I liked with customers and employees. So I went to a much smaller company in Medtronic, it was very mission-driven, very much driven by trying to help people be restored to full life and health. That's its mission. And I realized that's the action was, but I also knew you got to be a learner. And I didn't know anything about medicine. I knew a lot about high tech, nothing about medicine. So I learned the doctors that I learned the medical business through the eyes of the doctors. So when I was there, I saw between 700 and 1,000 procedures where I'd meet a doctor at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, gown up, put on the greens, go to his locker. Uh, and just, I didn't contribute anything. I just stood there and watched. That's where I learned that medicine was all about that last three feet, that life and death with that doctor and his whole support team, uh, the nurses, the radiologists, all the people that had to help make that surgery go. My son and daughter are both surgeons. So I know a little bit about that procedure. But I also found that I learned more about quality from talking to people on the production lines than I ever did from looking at quality reports or a quality department. That's the, you know, the people that knew what the problem was. They knew the root cause. That machine down there at the end of the place well, doesn't enable us to make quality products. And so that I try to urge all of our people, get out into the business. And I tell CEOs, how can, if you don't love your business, if you're not walking store floors, if you're not in the medical rooms, if you're not out talking to your customers, how can you do the job? If you're sitting back remotely in an office looking at numbers, you're never mm -hmm. going to get there. And uh, and so, yeah, we did a study at Harvard, found 72% of the time executives in C-suite spending their time uh, in meetings in, in the ivory tower, so to speak, and 5% of their time with employees, 3% with customers. This is a disaster. So if you don't love the business, then you ought to quit and go out on the beach. But you really love the business, not by uh, figuring out clever schemes in your office, figuring out what's going on. You know, Bill, that reminds me of a quote from uh, Senator Warnock, uh, where he said, yeah, to lead the people, you have to love the people. Ah, beautiful. And to love the people, you have to know the people. And to know the people, you have to walk among the people. Mm. And I think what you just talked about there was such a beautiful illustration of that. You know, it's just uh, how can you lead people you don't care about? And that's rather the predominant way that most people, you know, they view people just as interchangeable objects. And I think that is that is fundamentally what is missing, the humanity and the genuine care, you know, that leaders have. And it's always interesting to me how, 
how does what a leader become the leader they are and and uh, you know your journey to being that kind of a leader i'm sure it had a lot to do with your upbringing your parents uh, and other factors you know talk a little bit about what shaped you uh, into the kind of leader that you became and now the kind of leaders that you're helping others to become well that uh, really hits on the idea of understanding who you are and your life story and who are the influences uh, that, that influence you along the way, the parents, the coaches, the teachers, the uh, the mentors uh, that helped you. And I had a lot of those. I confess that I, I my parents, uh, my, my father definitely wanted me to make up for his failures. My mother said, son, I don't care if you get A's or C's. I just want you to be a good person, follow your values. That had a big impact on me of trying to live my whole life by following my values. <clears throat> Whether I succeeded or failed, that was what's important to me. So that was a huge influence. And uh, but I had some, you know, I thought I wanted to be a leader, and I lost seven elections in a row in high school and college. So I had a kind of rude awakening, like a water, bucket of water in your face. And so, uh, but then in my twenties, I I learned about. A lot about life. Uh, my mother died when I was 24, very suddenly of a heart attack. She'd had cancer, but died suddenly of a heart attack. And after that, I fell in love. I was very close to my mother because my father traveled all the time and uh, played golf on the weekends. But uh, my I fell in love with a woman from Georgia. I was living in Washington. We were living a few blocks apart. And I got engaged to be married. And uh, three weeks of the day before the wedding, she'd gone back home to prepare for the wedding. Her parents called to say she died of a malignant brain tumor. Mm -hmm. And these two incidents back to back really caused me to take stock of what's life all about. And, uh, you know, it's really about our relationships and people. And I love that quote. I hadn't heard it before, Raj, from Senator Warnock. Uh, yeah, walk among the people. And that's what really is life is all about. So, you know, no matter how much money you make, you can't take it with you. I don't care what your religion is. You're not taking it with you. Uh, but beyond that, uh, you know, what life is all is about relationship. And it's about whether you care about people. And if you don't care about the people you work with, you shouldn't work there because it really is about caring. And uh, so that had uh, a big influence on me. And I think, uh, yeah, my father wanted me so much to be CEO of a major company that I, uh, <laughs> I uh, you know, it's hard to leave Honeywell, but I went to Medtronic. Uh, I learned to lead with my heart. And I think today you have to lead with your head as well as your heart. What Senator Warnock talking about is the heart side. And that gets to uh, walking among the people. Well, I think you mentioned your mother and her influence on you. And you know, I think this idea of heart and head coming together is the integration of the masculine and the feminine. And I think in our world of business and government, we've had predominantly men and predominantly masculine energy of a certain kind. And in the absence of the feminine, that can often become unhealthy. Yeah. But I know one of the things about you, and I think you've written a book about this as well, is your experience with men's groups. And you've been part of a men's group for how long now? It's decades. 47 years. Wow. And, and so please talk about that a little bit, because you know, what has that done for you? What has that taught you that you would not have otherwise had? Uh, is there a crisis of, of masculinity? I believe uh, a lot of people are talking about that uh, in the world. And how do those groups help? And is that something you recommend? And how can other people find their way towards that? Well, we all need people we're close to in life to talk about difficult times. Where do you go when those things happen? Who did I talk to when I was thinking about making the change from Honeywell to Medtronic? That was a big, that was more of a psychological change for me than anything else. And so I talked to my men's group extensively about that, and they gave me encouragement. Uh, we've had a guy, one, we've had two people in our men's group pass away. Uh, and we worked with them through their dying stages, if you will. We had one person whose wife died. Another one uh, got fired from his job. And so these are the important things in life. But people need someone to talk to. I do a lot of uh, phone calls, counseling, mentoring, whatever you want to call it, with CEOs. They have no one to talk to, Raj. They can't talk to their board of directors about someone on the board that's giving them a hard time. Or maybe they can't talk to their management team about certain issues. They need someone to call and talk to. And so I think it's having a group like that in your life, which I found is invaluable. Yes, we're meeting tomorrow morning, Wednesday, 7.15 to 8.30. I was having breakfast earlier this morning with one of my mentees who heard this idea when I formed his own group. It's been transforming. He's 47, a former soccer player of mine, my coach soccer. Uh, yeah, it's having a big impact on his life. My son has formed a men's group and daughter-in-law women's group. 
I think having people with whom you can speak intimately, and that's what we try to do in our classroom session, everything is confidential. You can talk about those tough issues. You know, it's and uh, back to, back to the feminine. I'm glad you brought that up. My wife is often uh, she's a PhD psychologist, so we talk about this a lot. And I think a lot of men in my era growing up were really afraid of homosexuality. And so by talking about the feminine, they don't want to be seen as effeminate. And there was a fear of that. And I think, unfortunately, that allowed us not to develop the uh, those qualities, the if you will, the feminine qualities. So you have a well-balanced the yin and the yang in your life, and you develop those qualities that are so important to be a whole person. Mm-hmm. So are things like, and I'm saying now, like compassion, passion, empathy, courage, mm-hmm. are those, they're matters of the heart. Are those feminine qualities? Well, call them whatever you like. And uh, and I think, frankly, one of the great things that's happening today is having a lot more women in executive roles and a lot more female CEOs. And this is changing the workplace and uh, in a very positive way. We've kind of shut the door to women. And I used to say about women, uh, you don't have to do anything special. Just open the door and let them walk through the talents there. Give them the opportunity. Don't create that glass ceiling. Give them the opportunity. So I think this brought a much better balance to the workplace. And I think many of the women I feature in my book, like Ursula Burns and Animal Kehi, former CEOs of Xerox, and I mentioned Indra, and uh, Mary Barra, General Motors. Uh, these are just great leaders. And uh, don't they're also very strong. The idea that, you know, the man is strong and the woman is is, is weak, that, that's nonsense. You know, they, they're very strong in the appropriate way, if you know what I mean, not by being overpowering, but by being real and by holding to their values, their true north and not deviating from that. And we have a lot of younger leaders that have gone through a really tough time. Many of them women, they're featured in the book because it's important people see role models among the millennial generation of leaders Mm -hmm. who've really stepped up and uh, done the right thing on Jolly Sood. Another one is Jen Hyman, who had Rent the Runway, a fabulous idea. But guess what? It shut down with COVID. <laughs> we mm-hmm. talked to her after that. She had to redo her old business model. So, uh, yeah, I think that's one of the strengths of the workplace. And by the way, I don't think you can have a strong organization day unless you have a lot of diversity in it. And as I talk one chapter about the in- inclusive leadership, it's not about diversity. It's about inclusion and belonging. Do I feel like I really belong here? Not just, you know, I love the art. I love it because I feel a part. And we used to put people who are born outside the United States in a different category. Well, look how many of those people are CEOs. Look at somebody like Sachin Nadella who's transformed Microsoft, comes from India. Amazing what he's done. So I think creating that inclusive environment where everyone feels included and a sense of belonging, that their opinions are equally important to anyone else's. Uh, That's how the workplace is changing, I think, for the better. I love that word belonging. I think that really changes the whole debate from diversity to belonging. We want to be inclusive and we want people to feel like they belong and they feel comfortable. Now, I want to play on that riff about the the feminine leader a little bit as a father of a daughter. Um, You know, it's humbling to reflect on my my 26 year old daughter in uh, you know suddenly promoted up a couple levels and coming to me and say dad what are the things that i need to pay attention to in this leadership role where i'm suddenly managing people older than me and a lot of them are men and and i'm curious bill as you reflect on the book and um you know what is the letter you write to to a 26 year old woman who's you know that's different than what you would write to you, to your son um, to sort of say, hey, here's some of the things that you, you know, two or three things that are really important for you to think about as an emerging leader and as a woman. What, what would you What would you write about? What would you tell them? Be yourself. Be who you are. Uh, don't think you have to emulate the men. That was the problem with the when in the 90s with the Jack Welch call. I'm not picking on Jack, but how would you mm. like to be your daughter working at GE and said, you got to be like Jack? that I can't be like that. No, be yourself, be who you are and build those relationships. And yeah, let the uh, let the head and the heart both uh, flow. So continue developing both of those. And when you're dealing with older people, be a learner. What are you learning from them? You got to continue to be a learner. When I came to Medtronic, like I say, I had to be a learner because I didn't know the medical business. I've never had a job in my life 
I knew as much as people working for me. So I had to always be a constant learner. Now I'm long out of the full-time business role and still teaching, and I learn from my students. I never go into a classroom where I don't mm -hmm. figure I'm going to learn more from them than learn from me. They don't believe me when I tell them that, but it's true. I learn more from them than they learn from me. And so you have to be a continual learner throughout life. And you can learn a lot from the wisdom people that have gone before you and avoid some of those mistakes so she can avoid those things. And I think that's the key thing. And then create a diverse organization around you. Uh, she mm -hmm. may have the benefit of age diversity, which a lot of organizations don't. But bring those voices in of experience. Look at people who's really who really can bring knowledge to your team and experience mm -hmm. feels different than yours. And don't be afraid of having people who know more than you do on the team. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You just have to be able to pull out uh, the gifts from everyone there and bring your team together to operate as a team. And people that don't want to be team players, maybe they have to move on. Love it. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Uh, Bill, you mentioned a couple of leaders, and I think it's an interesting contrast uh, to talk about Jack Welch and now Satya Nadella, uh, both leading iconic companies. I think when Jack Welch retired, General Electric was the most valuable company in the world, and Microsoft was number two. And under Satya Nadella, he took a company that was becoming fast irrelevant, it seemed, in the chair and in, even in the technology space, and in a way refounded them and, and had a, just an extraordinary eight-year track record so far of not only creating extraordinary financial wealth, I mean, you know, almost two trillion at one point of incremental market value, but also uh, leading in all the other dimensions of diversity and environmental and social and the future of work and, you know, all of those things. So, uh, you know, a new sense of purpose, uh, a brilliant strategy, you know, and, and then take, focusing on all of the other elements as well and never talking about, about maximizing shareholder value and yet having an extraordinary record there. So that's kind of a model I think we're looking at today. And you're, you're a great student of leadership in addition to being a great exemplar. Um, we're looking at that, and then you look at what Jack Welch stood for and for those 20 years that he was CEO, and then all the people who came out of the Welch school, in a way, and went on to run many other iconic American companies with that exact same formula and what that did. So if you could contrast those two approaches, uh, and and are we in danger of, of going back to the Welch way, and how, how do we prevent that, or what, what do we need to do to think about that differently? Well, Jack was actually a great leader for his time in the 80s. I had great admiration for how he made GE competitive when it wasn't as bureaucratic as a lot of other companies like Siemens, Mitsubishi, and others. He did a lot of good things. He stayed too long. 20 years was way too long. And it became more of a, let's build the cult of Jack Welch than let's build GE. And frankly, a successor, Jeff Immel, could have changed all that. He didn't. And he failed. And so I lay the blame uh, for the failure of GE at his feet. Uh, not at the, uh, you know, and not just to Jack. It's easy to pick on people in the past who are deceased. Uh, but Satya, you know, is interesting. Steve Ballmer was more like Jack Wells for 14 years from 2000 to 2014. Do you know that the share value of general, uh, uh, excuse me, of Microsoft actually went down? I wrote an article saying they're liable to go the route that IBM did in the 80s before Lou Gerstner saved them if we don't watch out. And uh, because they, he was milking office and windows, he missed every little innovation. Well, Satya comes in and he brings empathy. And it's interesting. Here's a computer engineer that the empathy of Satya Nadella comes from maybe more from his son, Zane, who sadly passed away a year ago, uh, who was born with cerebral palsy. And, mm -hmm. uh, and Satya really learned. And he brought this idea. You have to be empathetic. And you also have to be growth oriented, personal growth as well as the company's growth. And he changed everything. And, you you know, they've done LinkedIn. They've done all kinds of things since then in Microsoft. Now they've acquired ChatGPT. But I think the more important thing Satya did is he changed that culture. It's hard to change an established culture. And he brought humanity to the culture uh, as well. And uh, But he also insisted people had to be self-aware. So I give Satya, I think he's probably the finest leader in the world today uh, in the business world. Uh, so I give him a huge amount of credit. And like you said, shareholder value has gone up eight times. So that makes the point, I think, that I try to make. I think, Raj, you, you and John try to make it that when you you only sustain lasting value for your shareholders by creating lasting value for your customers, 
and creating an environment for your employees where they want to work there and they want to come to work and create a culture where everyone has a chance to contribute and where everyone feels included and belongs to that culture. I mean, before it was a hugely political thing and he got rid of that. Alan Mulally did similar things at Ford. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, a successor wasn't as successful. So, mm-hmm. Well, Bill, um, you probably don't recall this, but I, I was involved uh, with some of the work you were doing at Unilever and then later at AstraZeneca at, at Harvard Business School. And right. I bring up those two names because you know, you talk about culture change, you talk about changing the trajectory of a business. And my big takeaway from both those efforts, um, and you could say they were both incredibly successful in their own way, was that they started with leadership at both places. I mean, I remember sitting around at Harvard Business School with the top leadership from AstraZeneca, top 120 leaders, you put them through that program. Mm -hmm. It was all about changing mindset. It was all about getting people to think differently as leaders and then go out and unleashing those people in the organization to lead change and do things differently. And I, you know, I'm waiting for you to write that book that says, you know, Hey, if we really want to make more conscious capitalist companies, Raj and I say all the time, you know, a company can't be more conscious than the level of the consciousness of the leadership and the leadership team. And these were, to my mind, two great examples where, you know, authentic leadership, finding your true north was critical to them changing the culture and change directory of the organization. Your thoughts on that? I mean, what, you know, it's, it's, it's at one level sort of obvious and another level, not everybody's doing it or, or even really. And I think that was part of what Microsoft did as well, was they made a big effort on leadership development to really change the types of leaders they were developing and promoting. Your thoughts on that in terms of trying to change an organization and the role of leadership? Let's talk about Unilever, particularly because it's a, a thrilling and sad story. Paul Pullman was recruited from the outside. People told him he didn't belong there. Uh, they used to have a, they had almost CEOs going back between the Dutch and the Brits and all that. He unified the company, totally transformed the culture over his 10 years there. I thought he did just a great job. And he put the emphasis on sustainability. And I did a seminar for him once. I said, you know, sustainability is Unilever's true north. And this is where you're making your mark. And it wasn't just about ESG. It was more about we have sustainable products uh, like detergents, laundry detergents, and things like that you may think is mundane. But he tied the purpose in that, giving them a competitive advantage. You know, our soups are tied to creating more sustainable foods and healthier foods and nor food soups soaps so uh, i thought he did a great job uh, sadly alan jupe his successor wasn't able to carry that on and then allowed himself to bring uh, an activist on his board nelson peltz who pushed out alan and now they've just appointed a new ceo who was a third tier manager at heinz who was not a successful company so i hope and pray that unilever do well but i'm not optimistic and much of the culture that uh, Paul created is kind of uh, going back and going back to that short-termism. So I'm sad about that. And because uh, I still think Paul's a great leader, a great guy, I work with him closely now, but I'm very sad to see what's happening there and that the CEO wasn't strong enough to stand in the face of the activists. And sometimes you have to do that. So I used the Indra Nui example earlier, Tim. Mm. Uh, the, the, these, these are tough situations, and you've got to be strong and willing to take it on. I reached out to Alan. And I said, can I help you? And he said, no, I don't need any help. I got more help than I need. Well, that's fine. I, you know, I, I don't look for any money from any of these things. It's just, you know, but if he wasn't willing to realize the risk of getting uh, – in bed, so to speak, with a short-term and activist investor, and what the risk to his long-term company is. The company's been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but the short-termism is extremely dangerous. I wrote mm-hmm. two cases on the failure of the Boeing 737 MAX, uh, one written after the first crash, one written after the second crash. And uh, GE leaders came in there at all levels and uh, ran the company, and they weren't were not willing to make long-term decisions. The guy should have been CEO is Alan Mulally. He loves Boeing, but then he went to Ford. He should have been CEO. Uh, but they had a series of short-term people, and they decided, and think about this, Raj. I want to challenge you to think about this, that uh, instead of spending money on developing new planes, they're going to buy back stock. Yeah. So they buy back about twice as much stock 
they use their cash to buy back stock twice as much as they do to develop new planes. So they never developed uh, these older planes, like a 737 goes back to 1968. They didn't develop successors to them. And then they came into a problem and uh, they got into deep trouble. But think about that short termism and how much shareholder value was lost by those two crashes. And, uh, and I've talked to the people at Boeing. It's a very sad story. By the way, that's a good example, Timothy, of knowing what your frontline people are doing. The engineers knew what was wrong mm -hmm. with these planes. Yeah. Instead, they, the management blamed it on the pilots and they, they were for their customers. And there was a little bit of, uh, shall I say, uh, uh, I don't know. They, these pilots are Ethiopian and Indonesian. Say whatever else you want, but they mm -hmm. say these pilots are not like our American pilots. Well, no, the pilots were not the problem. It was the, the planes that they made some total engineering flaws the engineers knew. And shame on them. You want to talk to the engineers? They told you. They, used, they did a Medtronic. If we had a problem, they'd tell me. Well, Bill, you brought up the uh, the share buybacks. You know, I think that's just been one of the most corrosive things that we've seen in the last 15 or so years. Where companies, I think S&P 500 averaged about 93% of, of profits going to share buybacks and dividends, and some years over 100%. Right, so borrowing money to buy back shares and creating not only weak balance sheets, uh, but also underinvesting, as you said, right. And so, do you have any further thoughts on that whole epidemic of share buybacks and what what that reflects? Uh, to me, sort of a uh, an absence of, of of commitment to the long term, a lack of creativity, of thinking we have we have no use for this money. We can't really invest in, you know, invest it well within the business, right? Let's just give it back. And is it is it is it the right way to even give money back? You know, why not more dividends instead of share buybacks? I don't quite understand that. If you want to talk about that a little bit, well, the market shifted now from your growth, which it was at Medtronic. That's why we had price to earnings ratio in the forties because we were growing at eighteen percent a year to how fast can I get my cash back? And so a lot of investors are pressuring people to do that. And it can lead to uh, very bad decisions. That's all I can say is, is because uh, you're, you know, and I remember on the board of Exxon, Exxon was very much a long-term company. I wish they would invest more in renewables. But I remember when the price of oil dropped from $100 uh, a barrel down to in the high 60s, we asked the CEO, well, what are your priorities? Because they've been buying back stock because they were making so much money, they had excess cash. They met all their needs. And he said, no, we're first thing, we are going to make our dividends no matter what, because we've got a lot of people whose livelihood, whether retirees or small investors, depends upon the dividend. Second, we will then make the capital investments we have to build the company 30, 40 years from now. And we'll, we're, we're shutting down, we're stopping our share buybacks. So I, I, I look at that, but I, I had another CEO that I was counseling with just uh, last month. And uh, he said to me, I'm under tremendous pressure from my board, my board and I've held out because uh, I will not take out billions in debt to buy back stock. And I said, you're doing the right thing. You already have enough debt. Why would you leverage yourself up? Okay, that's fine in a good times. So you see who goes out of business in bad times are people that have too much debt. You know, why did the bank fail to leverage and liquidity? Uh, if they if they don't, you know, if they have a ba good balance sheet, Rob. So I think it's 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 a very short term thing, and it's a thing of the moment. And I think people as leaders cannot get caught up in doing whatever the thing of the moment. When you're talking about investing in the long term in a company, that's not some of the moment. That's something that you do decade after decade after decade. Uh, but and not getting caught up in these short term schemes. And there are a lot of financial schemes, so called financial innovation. I make a big distinction between that and technological innovation. And a lot of the short-term innovation is just taking risks and letting your company get in trouble. And that's what the activists do. They load you up with debt. They bleed the company. They don't even worry if the company goes to private and they have to declare bankruptcy because they've already sucked all the cash out of the company. And uh, so I'm very much opposed to these financial schemes. I believe in a sound balance sheet, but I also believe the compensation should flow much more heavily to the people doing the work. Well, you know, Bill, it raises an interesting challenge, which is ultimately the buck stops with the board at some level. Yeah. And and you've been on boards, and I, and I know you've said, yeah, we got to buck it up at the board level. But having said that, clearly these boards have voted for share buybacks, and they've decided that there isn't enough creativity, there isn't enough opportunity in the business that they are perceiving, and they're going to choose 
to spend the money on, on these share buybacks. And you've been on a, a, some really big boards and, and what's wrong with our boards that they're thinking this way? I mean, holding the CEOs aside, this is to me a board issue and the board is not stepping up for a long-term stewardship of the business. They themselves are falling victim to the- You just the said it, that's their job. There's no reason boards should spend time on quarterly earnings. They can't influence quarterly earnings, but they, they it's the long-term stewardship of the business, Timothy. That's exactly 100% correct. And uh, and so I think boards need to to do that, but you get a lot of board members too influenced by outside things. They're watching the stock price, they're reading these analyst reports, they're going with the, the thing of the moment. That's why it, I don't necessarily, I was telling somebody who had been board of a major renewables company, and I was with him this weekend, and he's been on there for 20 years. He's thinking about getting off. I said, you might not want to get off because this is the game. This guy's in the solar business. I said, you may want to keep going. This may be the golden era for solar. They need your wisdom. You, he's brought new members on the board, diversify the board, but they need your former CEO. They need your wisdom. Well, thank you so much today for, for sharing the wisdom, the thoughts. And, uh, you know, we've just been incredibly fortunate to have you. You have a unique perspective as both a practitioner and a deep thinker on this. So thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you, uh, Timothy. Thank you, Raj. Uh, I appreciate the work you're doing. We, we're like fellow, fellow travelers. We're going down the same path. We intersect from time to time, but we need a lot of us to carry these longer-term messages and offset some of the short-termers out there. And I think you're doing the right things. I hope you keep going because this is so important and conscious capitalism got it right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Bill. And I'm really glad that you're out there doing the work that you're doing and advising leaders and, and helping us move in this in this direction that is so vital for all of us. So thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom uh, with us today. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners. And if you enjoyed today's podcast on whatever channel you're listening to, please feel free to hit the subscribe button. Or if you have any feedback for Rajanath, Apple and on the Apple podcast channel, you can leave us a comment or your thoughts. And thank you to Tech Sounds and Technology de Monterey Tech for sponsoring and making this possible. Thank you. Thank you.